Your little Leo. Here you go, Daryl. Right, right down here. This uh, young lady right here. Great. Okay, good. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we're learning so much from this important book. Uh, how interesting it is, the back and forth, the uh, stretching that's going on here, the stretching of faith, the stretching of ideas, the challenging of assumptions. They're struggling. Job and his friends are just struggling. They're beating us back and forth. They're trying to figure out life, and they're trying to get to know you, and they're trying to make sense of, of things that are puzzling them. And Lord, we just sort of eavesdrop in on this conversation, and it's so interesting and so provocative, and, and yet, Lord, so profound and so contemporary, because we've been right here too. We've struggled as well. We've had issues in our lives that have puzzled us, things that we've questioned. We, we've even at times, Lord, questioned what you are doing. Forgive us for that, but we have. We admit it. We've got to be honest. And, and Lord, we learn so much from Job by studying Job. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight, that tonight would be a, a, a stretching of our faith and that you would challenge the assumptions in our theology. You'd help us, Lord, to uh, think beyond and outside the box and help us, Lord, to, to really embrace you for the great, sovereign mighty God that you really are, a God that knows no bounds, a God that, that controls all things, both the good and the evil, the God who has purposes that are, that are far beyond our imagination. Help us to bow tonight, bow in obedience and bow in submission to the great God that we serve. We ask that you help us in Jesus' name, amen. A woman had gone to a new dentist, and she was waiting for her appointment when she noticed the dentist's license hanging on the wall. She read his full name, and it caused her to remember a tall, handsome, dark-haired young boy in high school, an old flame by the same name. Could her dentist be the boy that she once had a crush on? Well, when the dentist walked into the examination room, she quickly dismissed the thought because he was a balding, gray-haired man with these deep lines etched across his face, she thought, my, he's much too old to be my age. Still, though, curiosity got the best of her, and after the examination, she asked him, she said, did you ever attend Morgan High School? He said, oh, yes, I'm a former Mustang. She said, well, what year did you graduate? He answered, 1972. She thought, my, oh, my, that's the same year I graduated. This has to be him. And so she said excitingly, you were in my class. And that's when the man took a real close look at her and he replied, really? What class did you teach? Ooh. <laughs> hey, from her perspective, he looked much too old to be her age. But from his perspective, she looked much too old to be his age. Isn't it interesting how our view changes depending on our perspective? Hey, from God's perspective, Job was God's ally in a contest with Satan. He could be counted on to worship God despite whatever circumstances were thrown at him. Satan, he tossed all kinds of hardship at Job, yet Job still worshipped and praised God. Job praised God not because God buttered Job's bread with blessing, but Job praised God because he was worthy to be praised. Job's faith was a sincere and unselfish faith. But you know, Job and his friends never read the first two chapters of the book of Job. From their perspective, they were never told the whole story. They had a limited, earthbound perspective. You see, in heaven, Job was a hero, but on earth, oh, Job was a zero. In heaven, God and the angels and probably even Satan were amazed at the sincerity and the faithfulness and the unselfishness of Job. On earth, though, his friends were sure of his evil. And they argue now for many chapters that Job has committed some sin and his calamity is God judging him for his iniquity. But his friends were wrong. 
Remember that. They were wrong. They were dead wrong. For in the beginning of the story, God himself says that Job was blameless. In fact, throughout the story, Job maintains his innocence and uprightness. In fact, at the close of the story, God rebukes Job's mates for accusing him falsely. Job's three friends were trapped in a restrictive kindergarten theology that failed to embrace God for who He truly is, who failed to embrace God's sovereignty. This kindergarten theology assumes that bad stuff happens to bad people and good folks always prosper. The story of Job proves otherwise. Sometimes life doesn't turn out the way that we'd planned. God uses both the good and the evil to accomplish His purposes. And He doesn't always reveal those purposes ahead of time. At times, God expects us to trust Him even when we can't trace Him. In other words, our faith doesn't always get a reason. Remember Job's dialogue with his friends consisted of three rounds. Eliphaz was probably the oldest, so he spoke first, followed by Bildad and Zophar. By chapter 18, Eliphaz has gone twice. Now it's Bildad's turn to speak again. Then Bildad, the Shuhite, answered and said, How long till you put an end to words? In other words, Job has just spent the last two chapters disagreeing with their conclusions. And so Bildad now wants to know when Job is going to shut up and listen to them. He says, Gain understanding and afterward we will speak. Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? <laughs> that was certainly the impression that Job had of them. You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Or shall the rock be removed from its place? Now see, they had based their lives on some theological assumptions. God rewards good. God punishes evil. These were rocks. These were foundations and fundamentals in their life. He's asking Job, now what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to forsake our assumptions just for you, Job? The answer was ultimately yes. You see, their kindergarten theology didn't account for God's sovereignty. God is in control even when life takes terrible turns. You know, the Bible teaches us that God is just and that God is merciful. And God rules over both the good and the evil. Tony Snow, a former White House press secretary for President Bush, several years ago, Tony contracted cancer. Just recently, he passed away this past summer. But just before he died, he wrote this. He said, we want lives of simple, predictable ease, smooth, even trails as far as the eye can see. But God likes to go off-road. He provokes us with twists and turns. Has God ever taken your life off-road? Have things ever happened that you couldn't explain, that you didn't know why? Bumps and twists and dirt flying everywhere and you tried to make sense of your mess. You know, the kindergarten theology, it doesn't work when you go off-road. You have problems, you have questions. God has reasons for all He does, but often those reasons are hidden from us. Life can be perplexing. It can, it can be inexplicable. Circumstances don't always get an explanation. And in those moments, we're tempted to doubt God because of our limited perspective, because of our false assumptions. We can question God's love and God's fairness. We wonder even if He's fallen asleep at the will. We need to remember Romans 8, verse 28. It's a familiar passage. There Paul says, we know that all things, not some things, not most things, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Everything happens for a reason, even when you don't see its purpose. Now, Bildad expresses more of his false assumptions in verse 5. He says, The light of the wicked indeed goes out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp beside him is put out. In other words, the wicked man, he always will fall on hard times. His light will be extinguished. Eventually, he'll fall victim to his ignorance. The steps of his strength are shortened, and his own counsel casts him down. 
For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks into a snare. The wicked man always ends up trapped. The net takes him by the heel, and a snare lays hold of him. A noose is hidden for him on the ground, and a trap for him in the road. Terrors frighten him on every side and drive him to his feet. His strength is starved, and destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. And Bildad was probably describing Job. Remember he had boils all over his body. Patches of his skin were probably devouring his limbs. In essence, Bildad is accusing Job of being wicked, of being an evil man. He is uprooted from the shelter of his tent. That too had happened from, to Job. He's left, been kicked out of his house. He's now living out in the garbage dump. And then they parade him before the king of terrors. In other words, the wicked man becomes the poster child for the penalties of wickedness. Verse 15. They dwell in his tent who are none of his. Brimstone is scattered on his habitation. Now remember, Job lived in the time of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was during the days of Abraham and his nephew Lot that God rained down fire and brimstone on the two perverted cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The destruction of those twin sin cities was still headline news at the time. And here Bildad is comparing Job's calamity to the destruction of Sodom. I'm sure that the fall of an honored man like Job would have also been headline news. It would have made the pages, the papers, you know. Scandals usually make big news. Can you imagine a greater scandal than what had happened to Job? Well, in verses 16 through 19, Bildad says that the wicked, they wither. They're disgraced and they're forgotten. They're driven into darkness. They have no heirs to carry on their legacy. We pick it back up in verse 20. Those in the west are astonished at his day, as those in the east are frightened. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. What an accusation for Bildad to, to hurl at Job. Basically, he accuses him of not even knowing God. You know, Job, you're, you're a heathen. You don't even know God. That's your problem. Bildad the Brutal, that's what we call him. Praise the Lord for the rain. Chapter 19. And you notice who's got to go and roll up their windows. There you go, Stan. Chapter 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have reproached me. You are not ashamed that you have wronged me. Now only three rounds of this dialogue get recorded in the book. But notice Job says, ten times you have reproached me. As if three times were not enough. Can you imagine going ten rounds with these guys? They're relentless in their attempts to try to find fault in Job. To try to pin a sin on Job. And yet Job says to them, if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. He's saying that you guys haven't proven a thing. So far, all your accusations are untrue. He says, if indeed you magnify yourself against me and plead my disgrace against me, know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. Remember we mentioned last week that a restricted theology always creates a crisis of faith. You see, if you hold to a kindergarten theology long enough, eventually it'll force you into a corner. It will leave you with only two options. If God is just, and if God is fair, and if God is loving, if God settles every score in the here and now, then how do you explain it when a good person misses his flight and a bad person gets bumped up and takes his seat in first class? That's not fair. If there's a God, how can that happen? Why would God let such a thing occur? You see, in a restricted theology, there are only two choices in a situation like that. Either God failed 
God failed to do the right thing or the person in question actually did the wrong thing and sinned. You see, this is what a, where kindergarten theology traps you. It forces you into that corner where either God failed or I failed. There, there's no in-between. There's no third option. And this is why Job's counselors have insisted that Job is the one who sinned. For if not, it means that God has failed. And they're not about to entertain that possibility. That would be a blasphemous thought. But where his friends draw the line, Job is not so reverent. In essence, Job says here in verse 6, he says, If my only two choices are God failed or I'm a failure, then God failed. Because I certainly haven't sinned. Notice what he says, that God has wronged me. This is why I said earlier, in asking why, Job loses his way. You see, Job accuses God. He loses his perspective. Arrogance now replaces Job's innocence. In trying to prove himself, he ends up accusing God falsely. This was a mistake. Here, a humble man becomes a hurting man and ends up a haughty man. Job loses his respect and his reverence for God. He gets so caught up in asking why that he forgets who. Don't let that happen to you. Remember God's holiness and God's righteousness and God's justice. Here, though, Job borders on blasphemy. Verse 7 says, If I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. Hey, Job had asked for his day in court. And now he accuses God of denying him justice. C.S. Lewis once made a provocative comment. He, He wrote these words. The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches a judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. Man is the judge. God is in the dock or in the place of the accused. Man is quite a kindly judge. If God has a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, man is ready to listen. God may even be acquitted. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. This is why Job is such a contemporary book. Why why the message is so important for us today. For Job assumes the attitude of modern man. Modern man has become God's critic. We dare to tell God how to be God. Modern man becomes so preoccupied with wanting to know why, with demanding an explanation from God, that he ends up losing reverence for God. For many of us, knowing why has become more important than knowing who. Job puts God on trial. Right now in the story, Job is on the bench and God is in the dock. At the end of the book, God is going to turn the tables. He is going to return to the bench and he's going to put Job back in the dock. Well, Job continues his accusations against God in verse 8. He says, He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. My hope, he is uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me. And he counts me as one of his enemies. Again, Job assumes that God considers him his enemy. This isn't fair. This isn't right. It's not true. But it's Job's assumption. In fact, just the opposite was true. You remember how God felt about Job. God was so proud of Job's devotion that he staked his own honor on Job's reaction to difficulty. That's what God thought of Job. He loved Job. And he was proud of his piety and his devotion. He goes on and he accuses God. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. Job feels like he's surrounded, that he's under attack. He not only feels that God has abandoned him, but he also feels rejected by everyone else. Verse 13. He has removed my borders, my brothers far from me. And my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. 
I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. In other words, his own employees no longer return his calls. I call my servant, but he gives me no answer. And I pay their cell phone bill. And they won't call me back. You know, what's with that? He says, my breath is offensive to me. Which is often my problem, but that's a different subject. And I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Job, how low can you go? His wife won't kiss him because he's got bad breath. His kids won't hug him for the boils on his body. He's become an untouchable. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me. And those whom I love have turned against me. And the big part of all this is that God has done this to him. That's what he resents. And he's become very bitter. He says, my bone clings to my skin and to my flesh. You can count my ribs, he says, I've grown so thin. And I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. You ever heard that expression? Escaped by the skin of my teeth? Did you know that was from the Bible? That was first quoted by Job. As a matter of fact, here's a list of some common expressions that we use that actually come from the Scripture. Read the handwriting on the wall. Ever heard that one? That's from Daniel chapter 5. The apple of one's eye. That's what God called Israel in Deuteronomy 32 verse 10. He brought the house down. Remember Samson? Judges chapter 16. That's where that came from. There's a fly in the ointment. That's Ecclesiastes 10 verse 1. A little bird told me. That's from the Bible, Ecclesiastes 10, verse 20. Seeing eye to eye, Isaiah 52, verse 8. Like mother, like daughter, Ezekiel 16, verse 44. Go the extra mile. That's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. My hair stood on end. Ever heard anybody say that? I was so scared my hair stood on end. You remember where that came from? A couple of weeks ago, we studied that in Job. Job chapter 4, verse 15. He's nothing but skin and bones. Any guesses where that came from? What about the verse we just read? My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh. I'm nothing but skin and bones. Verse 21. Have pity on me. Have pity on me, O you my friends. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. It's interesting, Job's words were written down. And now we're reading them 4,000 years later. Apparently what God chooses to write in Scripture lasts longer than what can be engraved in a rock with a hammer and a chisel. God's Word lasts forever. Verse 25 tells us, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. Now notice this. On the one hand, Job is saying, Have pity on me, have pity on me, because God has struck me. Now, he says, but I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. It's interesting, Job's pain, his agony, puts him on an emotional roller coaster. Job becomes very moody. One moment he borders on blasphemy, the next moment he utters a prophecy. God struck me, but my Redeemer lives. Goes back and forth, back and forth. You ever been in that kind of a place? Can you understand Job? It's easy for us to understand Job, isn't it? One moment we're singing praise, the next moment we're trying to figure out why. You know, Job ends his frustration with God by rising up and reiterating his faith here. He believes that there is a mediator, there is a redeemer, and he lives. There's a redeemer whom he will embrace, who will embrace his cause and who will vindicate Job before God and his counselors. He's looking for a redeemer, a go-between, who will come to his own defense. He believes that he lives. And that he will see him one day on the earth. This redeemer that Job sees prophetically, of course, is none other than our Lord Jesus. 
There is one mediator between God and man, Paul says. The man, Christ Jesus. The second person of the Trinity, of course, was alive in Job's day. He knew that his Redeemer lived and that he would stand on the earth. It would take another 2,000 years or so before Jesus to appear and to stand on planet earth. In verse 26 he says, And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Job believed in a literal resurrection of the body. He believed that his boil-covered, disease-wrecked flesh would one day be made whole. He says, in my flesh I shall see God. What encouragement that is to a sufferer of cancer or a sufferer of some terminal disease or a sufferer like Job who who has a, a physical malady. He knows that one day his body will be resurrected, that his flesh will see God. What a hope that is. He says, how my heart yearns within me. If you should say, how shall we persecute him? Since the root of the matter is found in me, be afraid of the sword for yourselves. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. Now Job's counselors had concluded that the root of Job's calamity was found in Job. He says, you've already concluded that the root of the matter is found in me. His suffering was the result of some sin in his life. That was what their conclusion. But Job warns them. Be careful how you judge me, for you too are destined for God's judgment. And later we'll see when God appears at the end of the book, God has some stern things to say for Job's three friends. It's interesting, Job foresaw his Redeemer standing on the earth to judge all men. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand on the earth in the last This means that he didn't necessarily see Jesus' first advent. But he did see Jesus' second coming. And evidently, this happens often in the Old Testament. In fact, many of the patriarchs, they knew a lot more of the gospel than we might first assume. You remember Enoch? The Bible tells us that Enoch was seventh from Adam. He was the seventh generation from Adam. That's going way back now. That's older than I am. That's way back. Seventh generation from Adam. And yet according to Jude 14 and 15, Enoch preached about Jesus' second coming. Isn't that interesting? That that far back in time, the, the prophets, the seers, the patriarchs, they were focused not on his first coming necessarily, but on his second coming. Here was Enoch's message. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. The second coming. In the Old Testament, everyone who died went to a holding tank called Sheol. The believers were sent to the good side, Abraham's bosom. The unbelievers were placed in the torture cell known as the abuso or the bottomless pit. Job longed for the day when he would see God, when he would get answers to his questions, but he knew it wouldn't happen at his death that he would have to wait to see God at the resurrection of his body. In contrast, as members of the church, we have a much better hope, don't we? For Jesus emptied out that pit stop called Sheol. And now when we vacate the body, we move in directly straight into the presence of the Lord. Chapter 20 tells us, Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my anxious thoughts make me answer, Because of the turmoil within me. I have heard the reproof that reproaches me. And the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. Now Job's willingness to defy the conventional logic. And hold on to his innocence. Even in the face of all this calamity. Was making Zophar angry. It was upsetting him. It was creating a turmoil within him. He's got to speak. He says, do you not know this of old? Since man was placed on earth. That the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. So far contends that the wicked might triumph, but it's short-lived, only for a short while. Eventually, everyone reaps what they sow. The wicked man reaps the judgment coming to him, even in this life, he says. 
Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens and his head reaches to the clouds, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. I mean, for the moment, the wicked might prosper, but eventually he perishes like his own garbage. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. Yes, he will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place behold him any more. His children will seek the favor of the poor. In other words, a wicked man's family will become so impoverished that his kids will seek the poor man for a handout. This is what God will do to the wicked. His young bones, he says, turn to dust. Notice if you continue to read, his food goes down sweet, but it turns his stomach sour. Verse 15, he swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. In other words, the rich man, he eats fine foods, but his stomach can't hold them down. The wicked man chokes on his own riches. Wealth becomes his poison. Verse 18 says that his business makes a profit, but it yields no enjoyment. Verses 19 and 20 says that he forecloses on the poor, but he has no peace in his heart. And according to the next few verses, God interrupts the wicked man's self-sufficiency with distress. God's fury comes upon him, even as he stuffs his stomach. He's pierced through with an iron spear. Its sharp point exposes his intestines. Go ahead and read it. It's, it's interesting dialogue. The inhabitants of his tents, we're told, fare no better. And verses 27 through 29 sum up the plight of the wicked man. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart, and his goods will flow away in the day of his wrath. This is the portion from God for a wicked man, the heritage appointed to him by God. And here's Zophar's main point. Job, you are this wicked man. Chapter 21. Job answered and said, Listen carefully to my speech, and let this be your consolation. Bear with me that I may speak. And after I have spoken, keep mocking. And he's being sarcastic. You know, just let me speak, and then you can go back to mocking me if you want to. As for me, is my complaint against man? In other words, he's saying, you know, you, you guys are so brutal. You're so ugly t- t- toward me. But my beef's not even with you. You know, I don't, have a, I don't have an issue with you. My complaint is with God. In essence, Job is saying, in the past, I also believed in this kindergarten theology. I also embrace these prevailing assumptions. But now I see that life is not always that clear cut. Life is not always that straightforward. There are times when the wicked prosper. And there are times when, when the righteous suffer. He says, and if, if my complaint was against you, why should I not be impatient? You know, they hadn't listened. They hadn't really faced the facts. Life isn't fair. But they wouldn't admit it. You know, justice doesn't always prevail, but they were yet to, to see it. Verse 5, look at me and be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. Even when I remember, I am terrified and trembling takes hold of my flesh. Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. In other words, if God always judges the wicked, why doesn't he do so before they grow old and grow powerful? Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull breeds without failure. Their cow calves without miscarriage. The wicked, they're living on easy street. You know, somehow they escape God's judgment. Good stuff happens to them, in fact. They send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance. I mean, why is this that the drug dealer's kids go to the finest private schools? Why is it that the mafia boss, he, his kids get the best part in the school plays? You know, they dance. They have a good time. They sing to the tambourine and harp and rejoice to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. Yet they say to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. In other words, the wicked, they thumb their nose in God's face and still seem to prosper. Why is that, Job says? 
Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we have if we pray to Him? Oh boy. If the wicked rebel against God and still enjoy the good life, well then what's the point in serving God? If they ignore God and prosper, then why do we bother to pray? Hey, you notice Job is about to unravel the victory that he had won earlier in heaven. He's really contradicting himself. That contest between God and Satan, it's centered on this question. Do people worship God because they benefit from it or because God himself is worthy to be served? And here Job is asking, why serve God or why pray to God if there's no kickback? He's about to unravel the victory that he had won for God in the first place. Verse 16, indeed their prosperity is not in their hand. In other words, prosperity seems totally unrelated to righteousness. He says, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. Job just can't figure life out. It's a perplexity. In other words, kindergarten theology does very little good in explaining real life. He says, how often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows God distributes in His anger? The answer is not enough, isn't it? God doesn't punish the wicked as often or as severe as they deserve. That's for sure. And in the next few verses... Job admits that God does judge evil men, but there's still some problems. Even if you concede that, there's still some problems. For often the consequences fall on the evil man's kids after he's dead and gone. He says, they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that a storm carries away. They say, God lays up one's iniquity for his children. Let him recompense him that he may know it. Let his eyes see his destruction. And let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about his household after him when the number of his months is cut in half? I mean, if he's dead before he sees the consequences of his sin, what kind of judgment is that? His kids are the ones who reap the consequences. And he drifts off into oblivion unknown you know, to what he's deserved or what he's earned. And Job says, that's unfair. He says, can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges those on high? And the implication there is that someone should. Catch this. Job wants to teach God a lesson or two. Job wants to teach God how to be God. God, just listen to me. I can tell you how to do your job. See what's happening to his attitude? (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Who would ever coach God on being God? Can you imagine ever doing that? Can any of you even imagine ever telling God, you know, how to be God, what what he ought to be doing? Can you imagine that? We all can imagine that because we've all been guilty. We've all done it. We've all tried to coach God. We've all tried to be God's counselor. God have mercy. He says, one dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and secure. His pails are full of milk, and the marrow of his bones is moist. He didn't even get old and brittle. He didn't even suffer the plague of old age, you know. He stayed limber and strong and full of vitality until he died. What's with that? Verse 25, another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. They lie down alike in the dust, and worms cover them. Why does one man live in ease while another man dies in bitterness? And the answer is not always tied to their morality or to their goodness. He says, look, I know your thoughts and the schemes with which you would wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? And where is the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? Have you not asked those who travel the road? And do you not know their signs? Hey, Job, the wicked live in tents. Princes live in palaces. Isn't that proof that the wicked are judged and that the noble are blessed? And here's Job's answer. For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. God does see to it that the wicked are punished. 
but not necessarily in this lifetime. Job contends that the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They're brought out on the day of wrath. And you know, the reverse is also true. It does pay to be good and godly. It does pay to be good. But payday doesn't always come in this life. The point here is that not all scores get settled in the here and now. Verse 31. Who condemns his way to his face? Notice a wicked man dies and he never has to face his crimes. Nobody ever faces him and confronts him with these issues. He's never charged. He's never confronted with his evil. He never is held accountable for what he's done. That bothers Job. And who repays him for what he has done? Yet he shall be brought to the grave and a vigil kept over the tomb. What an irony. He's guilty in his life, but he's honored in his death. The clods of the valley shall be sweet to him. Everyone shall follow him as countless have gone before him. In verse 34 is Job's conclusion. How then can you comfort me with empty words since falsehood remains in your answers? In other words, kindergarten theology doesn't account for life's incongruities. Life isn't as straightforward as we would like. Wicked people often get away with their crimes. And bad people don't always prosper. And that's just life. I used to love to listen to Paul Harvey. Ever listen to Paul Harvey? Yeah. He would spin a tale, and then just before the commercial, he'd say, Stay tuned. We'll be back for the rest of the story. And you better believe I was back. I had to sit through all of those antacid commercials and stuff he was trying to sell. And when Paul did come back to the radio, man, he finished the story. And what a great story it was. He'd always put a happy ending on a con- convoluted story. He'd always put a happy ending on the story. He would always give an ending that made perfect sense to what had been said beforehand. You know, today we are living in the commercial. Every story begun on earth does have a happy ending in heaven. But we have to stay tuned. Because only heaven tells the rest of the story. And in the meantime, in this in-between time, we may have to put up with some perplexity and some ambiguity and some not knowing. In short, we're going to have to have faith. What a shame. (laughs) We're going to have to have faith. But isn't that what God expects? You see, the kindergarten theology of Job's three friends had caused him a lot of grief. You know, it's dangerous, dangerous to judge without being privy to all the information. Remember that whenever you counsel someone. It's dangerous to judge without being privy to all the information. You know, we we end up so often guilty of a prima facie judgment. Prima facie is a Latin phrase that means at first sight. You know, our interpretation of the circumstances, what things appear to be, is often dangerously superficial. We need the rest of the story before we're in position to offer any meaningful advice. Always remember Deuteronomy chapter 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. As one man put it, life is painted on too large of a canvas. We lack the vantage point to see all the brush strokes. Our role is to simply love and trust the painter. Chapter 22 tells us, Then Eliphaz the Timonite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God? Though he who is wise may be profitable to himself. Notice Job has been more concerned with his own reputation than he has with the glory of God. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? Is it because of your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Again, he's being sarcastic. You know, God blesses folks who fear the Lord. He doesn't punish them. Reverence is rewarded, not judged. 
Oh, Job, yeah, he's, God's just heaping out all this trouble on you because you've just been fearing God. He's being sarcastic. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? What a bold, groundless, baseless accusation. Eliphaz just, he accuses Job of being a serial sinner. He says your evil is endless. Notice they can't pin a specific sin on Job. So what does Eliphaz do? He just throws a kitchen sink at him. Oh, your iniquity is just endless, man. And what follows is a tirade of false accusation that's thrown at Job. Here's sort of a summary. He calls in his loans prematurely. He deprives the poor of clothes and food. He mistreats the widows and the orphans. These are what they're saying about Job. Verse 10 says that Job is flooded with darkness. Notice in verse 12, Is not God in the height of heaven? And see the highest stars, how lofty they are? And you say, what does God know? Eliphaz accuses Job of questioning God's wisdom. He's saying that God can't see through the clouds. He walks above the circle of heaven. In other words, he's too aloof. He's too removed to know what's happening on earth. Have you ever felt that about God? That he didn't really know about your situation? Verse 15, will you keep to the old way which wicked men have trod, who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by a flood? Now he's accusing Job of following the example of wicked men. They said to God, depart from us. What can the Almighty do to them? They defy God's power to judge. Again in verse 18, Eliphaz reasserts that God blesses the righteous and he judges the wicked. He tells Job in verse 21, Now acquaint yourself with him and be at peace, thereby good will come to you. If Job will just get to know God, he'll be at peace. The implication, of course, is that Job doesn't know God and that he needs to repent of his sin. And in the next few verses, Eliphaz insists that Job's repentance should include giving up his gold. If he wants to be right with God, he has to repent of his greediness. Again, dreaming up another accusation. Verse 25, yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver, for then you will have your delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Eliphaz is alluding that Job has been worshiping gold instead of God. That money has become his idol, and that's why all these things have happened to him. The rest of chapter 22 encourages Job to repent. Eliphaz has spoken three times now, over four chapters, but it is the same message over and over. Job needs to get right with God. And in chapter 23 and 24, Job responds to Eliphaz. Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Imagine Job standing there, his, his hand is sort of quivering. It's limp, it's feeble. His strength is almost depleted from all that he's been through. And notice too his own admission. He has become bitter. You know, Job has sort of stepped out of line. He's made some awful statements and he's about to make more. Again, in asking why Job loses his way. He says, oh, that I knew where I might find him. That I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Job is saying that if he can plead his case in God's court, he wants to issue God a subpoena, he wants to pin God down. If he could do so, Job could force God to answer his questions. In October 2007, Nebraska State Senator Ernie Chambers filed a lawsuit against God. Did you hear about this? He accused God of making continuing terroristic threats against mankind and causing, and I quote, fearsome floods, egregious earthquakes, horrendous hurricanes, terrifying tornadoes, pestilential plagues, ferocious famines, devastating droughts, genocidal wars, birth defects, and the like. Got a little carried away with his alliterations there, didn't he? To keep the suit from being tossed out of court for failure to notify the accused, Chambers mentioned that he had tried several times to contact God and to serve him notice. The senator said, and I quote, 
come out, come out wherever you are. But God did not reply. Hey, Ernie Chambers better hope that God doesn't reply. Chambers admits that God is omniscient, so he assumes that God knows about his lawsuit, and so he's requested the judge to go ahead and hear it as soon as possible. But this was Job, just like Ernie Chambers. He too wanted to sue God. He wanted to take God to court. He has a beef that he wants to take God to trial. He wants answers from God. He wants to know why all of these horrible things, these calamities have taken place in his life. Job expects God to answer his questions and to tell him why. He says, would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. Job is saying God would have to face his questions. There the upright could reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. If God can just get his case on God's docket, he knows that he'll be vindicated. Verse 8. Look, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. Boy, Job's arrogance sounds a lot like Ernie Chambers, doesn't it? Come out, come out, wherever you are. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Again, here's Job's moodiness. Well, at times he comes perilously close to blasphemy. At other times he has these outbursts of faith, these declarations of faith. And here's an explosion. Job senses that somehow in this ordeal that he's enduring, somehow this is a test. He senses that. He doesn't know all of the details. He doesn't know how this is all working out. But he senses in his heart that this is a test. He realizes a truth. A truth that you need to realize, and that's this. The stress in my life is often a test of my faith. You see, the book of Job teaches many lessons, but one of the most vital is that our reactions on earth matter. For in a mysterious way, unknown to you and me, God's reputation may be hanging on the way that we handle the next hassle or the next hardship. God's honor in heaven may be riding on our reaction to the twists and turns life throws our way. To me, the message of Job is the most practical in all of the Bible. It ups the ante on everything that happens in my life. Nothing is trivial any longer. Imagine this. Every angelic eye may be on you, watching you in your current crisis to see if you fold or if you're faithful. It's a test. It's only a test. And Job senses that when God is done, after he's turned up the heat, and after he's skimmed off the impurities, and after he's repeated the process over a lifetime, Job will come out of it as pure gold. His character will be refined. And so will yours, if you'll trust him in the midst of that refining process. He says, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Trust the Lord, you'll sing that same refrain. In verse 11, Job continues, My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured his words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Notice this, Job maintains his innocence, and in doing so, he reveals his love for God's word. Understand, this strong, tough, battle-tested faith that belongs to Job wasn't built on charismatic meetings and wonders and worship and miracles and fellowship, but it was built on an insatiable hunger for God's Word. Guys, this is what puts on spiritual muscle. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Job loved a Bible study more than he loved a trip to Outback Steakhouse. That's what he says. I love the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique, and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. God is changeless, and God does whatever he pleases. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence when I consider this. I am afraid of him. It is a bit unnerving to realize that our lives are at God's disposal to do with any way that he desires. That is, until we, until we realize that he loves us. 
What causes us to warm up to His sovereignty is knowing that He loves and cares for us. Now in verses 16 and 17, Job admits that he's in a really dark place, that he's become weak, and that he's really terrified by God. You know, perhaps you're in a dark place in your life tonight. Perhaps you're struggling in your life. Perhaps you've been wondering why. It reminds me of Gardner Taylor. He was preaching once in a Louisiana church. It was back during the Depression. And in the middle of the sermon, the building lost its one light bulb that was lighting up the sanctuary. Man, the church turned pitch black. The young pastor started to stumble and stammer. Suddenly, one of the deacons shouted out, Preach on, preacher! We can still see Jesus in the dark. And this is the lesson that God is going to teach Job. You can still see Jesus even in the dark if you look with faith. And this is the lesson that God is wanting to teach you. He's wanting to teach me. That Jesus is still with us, even in the dark. And if we have eyes of faith, we can see him even in the dark places. Chapter 24, since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know Him see not His days? In other words, Job wonders why people who know God still have questions about Him. Well, I know Kathy Adams. We celebrated our 28th anniversary yesterday. But do I know all there is to know about Kathy Adams? Nope. I am still learning. And Job was still learning. Yeah, yes, he knows God, but he doesn't know all there is to know about God. He's perplexed by God's delay in judging the world, the wicked. He says, some remove landmarks. They seize flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox as a pledge. They push the needy off the road. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. Imagine these people. Pushing the wicked off the road, taking their stuff from them. People hiding from these people. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to their work, seeking diligently for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They mistreat the poor and the needy, and yet their families are well fed. What's with that? Verse six, verses 6 to 11 sing the same refrain, really. People do wickedly, and yet for the moment, God's judgment doesn't come. It's delayed. Verse 12. The dying groan in the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not charge them with wrong. Why? Verse 13 introduces those who rebel against the light. The murderer in verse 14, the adulterer in verse 15, the thief in verse 16. I'm running out of time. They all should be cursed, and yet they're not. Verse 19, as drought and heat consume the snow waters, so should the grave those who have sinned. In other words, in a just world, this would be the plight of the evil man. Verse 20 depicts the end of the evil man. This is pretty vivid. The worm should feed sweetly on him. He should be remembered no more. That's what should happen to the evil man. The worms should feed sweetly on him. But to his disappointment, Job sees little difference between the plight of the wicked and the plight of the righteous. He says in verse 22, no man is sure of life. Verse 24, everyone is exalted for a little while, then they are gone. And in verse 25, Job challenges his counselors to deny his observations. He says, now, if this is not so, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? He says the inconsistencies in life are real. God is good, but life ain't always fair. Who can deny it? Anybody going to argue that tonight? God is good, but life isn't always fair. And you know what? You know how to make sense of that mess? The ultimate answer is faith. That's what we're going to talk about next time. So next week, I want you to read Job chapters 25 through 31. So just three more weeks in Job. Next week, Job 25 through 31. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Encourage our hearts with it. 
Lord, we're all fellow strugglers on this, on this uh, pilgrim's path that we're traveling. Lord, help us to learn the importance of faith. Help us to, to not try to reduce you to a God that we can completely understand or completely uh, manage or control. You're, you're a big God. And you do things often without giving, getting our permission or giving us an explanation. And help us, Lord, to learn to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.